Our, script, our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For as I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you not, did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also were answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Thank you. Uh, before I begin, I just want to remind you that uh, we continue to have our Lenten uh, Wednesday prayer meeting, so I want to invite you, all of you again uh, to join us uh, this Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Also, uh, for giving this week, I want to encourage you, uh, you hear more about this uh, from uh, Harry uh, during the announcement time, but we want to designate this week's giving uh, toward uh, Kenya sponsorship. So I hope uh, if you have been in the habit of giving every week, uh, that you will consider uh, giving to one of the sponsorships uh, that you'll hear more about uh, later in the service. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made and for your word, uh, which we have just heard. Help us now to understand them and to apply them uh, to our lives that we may be your people living righteously. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure uh, what my answer would be today if you were to ask me. But for most of my life, when people ask me, what's your favorite movie? I used to always respond with Cinema Paradiso. It's a 1988 Italian film. And the heart of the story is a relational journey between a boy named Salvatore and his uh, mentor, an aging movie projectionist named Alfredo. As a public service announcement, I want you to know that there are multiple cuts of this film, and like Zack Snyder's and Josh Whedon's different visions of Justice League, there is only one version that you should watch. And no matter what my wife tells you, 
you should only watch the shortest of the three versions. Now, anyway, at one point in the movie, Alfredo tells Salvatore a story which I have never forgotten. It sounds better in Italian with Alfredo's animated voice and hand gestures, uh, but here is the subtitled version of the story. Once, a king gave a feast to the loveliest princesses in the realm. Now, a soldier who was standing guard saw the daughter of the king pass by, and she was the most beautiful of them all, and he fell instantly in love. But what is a poor, simple soldier next to the daughter of the king? But at last, one day, he was able to meet her, and he told her that he could no longer live without her. The princess was so moved by the depth of his feelings that she said to him, if you can wait under my balcony for 100 days and 100 nights, at the end of it, I shall be yours. The soldier went and waited one day, then two days, then 10, then 20. And the princess looked out from her window and he never moved. In rain, in wind, in snow, he was always there. Birds defecated on him, bees stung him, but he never budged. At the end of 90 days, he was all dried up, his face white, and tears streamed down his face. He couldn't hold him back. He didn't even have the strength to sleep. And all that time, the princess watched him. At long last, it was the 99th night. And the soldier stood up, picked up his chair, and left. A confused Salvatore then asks, that's it? And Alfredo responds gruffly, that's it. I don't know what it means. If you understand it, you tell me. I think it's a great story. And I'm sure as you heard it, you formed your own opinions, interpretations about what it might mean. And I can tell you that over the years, uh, I formed my own ideas about what the story means, and I've had to kind of revise it uh, as I've gotten older. Um, and in fact, just this week, I was watching it again, and I revised my interpretation of it once more. Um, now, I think a story told within a larger story can have multiple meanings. And that story can stand by itself. Had I just simply told you that story without any sort of frame, you could have enjoyed the story and drawn your own conclusions from it. You didn't have to know that it's from this other larger story, this movie. And taken out of that context, you could come up with all sorts of interpretations 
that might be equally valid out of context. That's the power, I think, of, of, of a great story. However, if you were to hear that story as you're watching the movie, not every interpretation is going to be equally valid. Whatever ideas you might have out of context, as you're watching the movie, you'll realize was either incomplete or inaccurate. You will have to consider, for example, when the story is told in the movie, why it's told, by whom, and for what reasons. And you'll also have to see how that story impacts the characters and why when Salvatore eventually tells Alfredo what he thinks the story means, that, that's just another layer that you have to kind of incorporate into your overall understanding of what that story might mean. And as a viewer, we, we have the additional perspective of seeing that story play out in the story of the characters and perhaps thinking about what did the director or the screenwriter envision for the meaning of that story. Now, it may be impossible for any of us to get at the original intent, and perhaps it goes even beyond what they had intended. But seeing it in the context of the larger movie, we can at least understand how that story functions within that story, and that it has at least an attempt at a particular meaning. And I think a similar approach is really really vital to our hearing and understanding what we heard from Matthew 25 this morning. The story that Jesus tells is so powerful that his long stood as an independent morality tale. Lifted out of context, it is generally interpreted in a general kind of way that those who show mercy and compassion and hospitality will be rewarded with eternal life and those who don't will be punished in the fires of hell. It's an appealing interpretation because it's universal in scope. It doesn't rely on any particular religious system or philosophy. There is no exclusive claims about Jesus Christ. It's essentially the basis of almost all religions and all moral and ethical systems in the world today. And it's a view that resonates especially well today, I think, in our ethos of toleration and pluralism. For most religious people, the idea that everyone will be judged according to what they did, to how well they treated others, seems like a reasonable basis for judgment. Even non-religious people, I think, would generally agree that if there were a God, such a judgment would be fair. It's what someone called salvation by humanitarianism. It's a do-goodism. And if you take our reading today as an isolated and an independent story, then I think that would be a fair and reasonable reading of the story. But notice that Jesus says to the sheep from the very beginning, he says, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. The language of blessing, of inheritance, of preparation before the beginning of time tells us that eternal life is fundamentally a gift and not a matter of works. Furthermore, the interpretation that 
we are saved by doing good, it's difficult to reconcile with the overwhelming amount of teaching in the scriptures that we are saved by faith and faith alone. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved, by faith and not of yourself, not of good works, lest anyone should boast. But of course, the biggest problem with this line of uh, interpretation is that if good works save us, then what's the point of Jesus? It makes his death on the cross irrelevant and cruel, even sadistic. If God will judge us on our works only, why then did he send his beloved son to die on the cross? The law would have been sufficient. But be nice is not the message for which Christ was crucified. As I've been saying for many weeks now, we have to consider the larger context. Rather than reading this as a a random or an isolated story, we have to see how it functions in the context of the whole gospel. So first of all, I can tell you that in the gospel of Matthew, there are five major teaching sections beginning with the Sermon on the Mount. There are five teachings. And and Matthew does this deliberately to uh, parallel the five books of the Torah to say that Jesus is greater than Moses, that he is the, the right and true interpreter of the law, that he is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And chapter 24 and 25 in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the fifth and last set of teachings. And what you just heard is the last of all of the teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. So five sets of teachings, this is the last set, and this is now the last of the last set. So in many ways, you know, this, this is like, this is it. This is the culmination of all the teaching that has been going on. And this particular story that Jesus tells is in a direct response to a question that the disciples ask him at the beginning of chapter 24. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately asking, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's in response to that question that Jesus then tells all these things about what to expect at the end of the age. He gives a description of what that's going to look like. And then he concludes his teaching with a series of parables, including the parable of the wise servant who served dinner on time, about the bridesmaids who were prepared with extra oil, about the servants who were entrusted with with talents, as we heard about last week, to invest while the master was away. These teachings are a guide to the disciples on how to live while they are waiting for his coming again with faithfulness, with, with preparedness, and with diligence. And our reading this morning is the last of these teachings. As Jesus is facing crucifixion and death, he gives his disciples a reassuring vision that death is not the last word, that he is going to come in glory in the last days for final judgment when the kingdom of God 
will be fully fulfilled and realized. Jesus is declaring, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he says, then he will sit on his glorious throne. His first coming was in weakness and obscurity. But at the end of the age, he will come in power and in glory. In his first coming, he had no place to lay his head. But at the end of the age, he will sit upon the throne to judge all the earth. In his first coming, he was rejected by those in his hometown. But at the end of the age, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has been warning about separation and the coming judgment at the end of the age. Grain will be separated from chaff. Wheat will be separated from the weeds. Good fish from the bad. And now the sheep from the goats. Jesus had warned earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. At the end of the age, there will be no opportunity for deliberation, for appeal, no further case to be made. At the end of the age, notice here, it will be Jesus who will be the final arbiter and judge, not a list of good deeds. It is Jesus who will be the judge. The decision, that decision has already been made, and it will be as clear as the difference between sheep and goats. Um, I know we're not raising sheep and goats, but you know the difference between a sheep and a goat. It will be as clear as that. And we don't get to choose. The sheep don't decide who goes in the barn and who stays out. The fish don't decide who gets tossed back into the sea. It has been made by the one to whom belongs everything. So in the context of Matthew's gospel, the judgment that Jesus is speaking of here is not really a universal judgment on all people based on good works. In fact, until really the 18th century, it was traditionally understood that this is a judgment restricted to Gentiles and to Gentile nations. In verse 32, for example, it says, before him will be gathered all the nations, or all the Gentiles, and he will separate them. I know the ESV has people here, but it should be, it's, it's them, one from another. The word translated as nations here uh, is ethne, from which we get ethnic. And it can mean either nations, or it can mean Gentiles, those who are outside the church. In other words, he will separate, Jesus says, he will separate the nations, groups of people, not individuals. So then the judgment becomes how a nation or a group of Gentiles treats the least of these my brothers. That's the basis of judgment. And we get a clue of what this really means in Matthew 10, where Jesus told his disciples something very similar. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And then he says, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The little ones, 
the least of these, my brothers, these are Christian missionaries bearing the good news. These are the people who are going to suffer and be persecuted for sharing the good news. And so how a nation treats those who come bearing the good news will be judged accordingly. That's the judgment. And so right in this larger context, Jesus here really is giving a word of encouragement to his followers, to those who will find themselves thirsty and hungry and sick and persecuted, stranger, naked, sick and imprisoned, and that how people treat them will be the basis of God's judgment ultimately upon the nations. So in the larger context, this is probably not a general final judgment for everyone based on good works, but a judgment for those peoples and nations and those who are outside the community of believers and how they treat those who come bearing good news. With that, let me make just a couple of uh, reflections. First is that, you know, the surprise experience at the last judgment suggests that whatever acts of mercy are done, their value lies in the fact that they're done without any ulterior motives, without any sort of self-acknowledgement. The surprise for both those on the right and the left is not about what they did. They knew what they did or didn't do. Those on the right knew they gave water to the thirsty. They just didn't know that it was Jesus. To do good, to be righteous, without being aware of it, to live a virtuous life without being aware of it, that is what is getting rewarded here. It reminded me, like, this is, I think, like the, um, the premise of the, the, uh, another classic movie, um, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I'm assuming all of you have seen it, but in case there's one or two of you who haven't. You know, it's a story about a guy named George Bailey who at, the, uh, at a point in his life thinks he's wasted his entire life. Right? He, he's reached a point of despair, and, and he wants to just, you know, he thinks that it would have been better for everyone if he had never existed. And in that state of mind, he is rescued uh, by an angel who grants him that wish to see what the world really would have been like had he never existed. And as he watches the story of his life without him in it, he sees that, in fact, he had made an incredible difference in the lives of so many people. In some ways, that, that kind of ruins it, right? Because now he knows what he did. Now he knows he was a good guy. But that, that's the kind of surprise that Jesus is talking about here. He had no awareness of all the good that he had done. Those that Jesus commends on the right are like good trees bearing good fruit. They didn't think they were doing anything special. They certainly weren't doing it because they thought that it was Jesus that they were serving. It wasn't like, oh, you know, Jesus is there, so I'm, I'm going to go and serve. They did what they did because that's who they are. As Jesus said, the source of, the source of salvation flows from the fact that they've been blessed of my Father, freely blessed and favored by grace. And so the works that are done, it's just a natural outworking of who they are in God. Why do we feed the hungry? Why? Why do we clothe the naked? Why do we visit those who are imprisoned? Why do we do any act of mercy or compassion? 
Is it to soften our own sense of guilt? Is it to, to make ourselves feel better or superior in some way? Is it an exercise in some sort of savior mentality? Is it an opportunity to show off? Is it to game the system and somehow earn points for heaven or something like that? Scott Jose, in a commentary on this passage, offers this illustration. He talks about a man named Jonathan Kozel, who's devoted much of his career to studying children uh, who are in very difficult situations, like in the South Bronx. And he says that he now remembers some of the way in which he himself talked about these kids. He said that he used to march up to Capitol Hill in Washington to advocate for more money for good programs like Head Start. And when he did, he said he used to say things like, every dollar you invest in Head Start today will save the country $6 later on in lower prison costs. But now he confesses he's ashamed to have put it that way, all in terms of dollars and cents and in the public interests and revenue and bottom lines. Now he says this, why not invest in these kids because they're babies and they just deserve to have some joy in their lives? Love and serve your neighbors and even your enemies, I think Jesus is telling us, because every life is valuable before God. Serving others with mercy and compassion is what disciples do because that's who they are. It seems to me that whenever we become aware of our own goodness, we are in danger of losing whatever benefits we might pass on to others and even to our own souls. Jesus calls us to care for others because all are made in the image of God and thus are valuable and to be loved. It's enough that they are fellow human beings. Second, even though this may be a more restricted judgment on Gentile nations, I think it's still a very valuable lesson, very relevant uh, for all of us. As a people of faith, yes, we are saved by grace, but at the very same time, we are also called to act with good works. I quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9 a little earlier. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. But the very next verse, verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace and for good works. We are justified by faith and faith alone. No question. But if there are no good works that result, if there is no evidence at all of a changed life of compassion, then is it really faith? That's the question I think that is posed. Works do not and cannot save us, but they must be a part, a necessary response to that faith. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Ethan shared about the parable of the talents. 
And he said that one talent might be worth something like a half a million dollars. A half a million dollars. Now, I know there are some of you here, you're very comfortable investing a half a million dollars. I'm not. Uh, side note, thank you to the investment committee for doing that. Um, you know, I'd be, I'd be intimidated to invest that sum of money with the fear of losing it, right? But in this, look at this. What is commanded here for all of us, whether it's nations or peoples, what is commended is not some great risk, not some great project, not large sums, but really the tiniest acts of mercy and compassion. Jesus does not commend those who did something great and amazing and worthy of going viral on social media. He says, I was sick and you visited me. He doesn't even say, I was sick and you brought me Tylenol or, or juke, right? You just came to visit me. That's it. I was in prison and you came to visit me. It's not I was in prison and you found a way to get me released because the laws are unjust. It's, you just visited me. We can certainly do more than what is written here. But here, Jesus calls for the smallest of compassionate acts. You gave me a meal. You gave me a drink. You welcomed me. It's something any of us, all of us, can do. It's like Jesus is setting the bar as low as possible. And on the flip side of this, those on the left, you notice, they're not condemned because they did some incredibly horrific act of evil. These are not people who are condemned to eternal punishment because they murdered, right? Or committed genocide or theft or anything like that. They are condemned for not giving someone a cup of water. Something as small as that. Now, it can sound, you know, that seems unfair, right? That someone would be eternally punished, not because of something really horrific, which they might be deserving of, but because of something as small as this. But that's what Jesus says. I think Jesus is trying to tell us that we, all of us, we are that responsible for one another. We are that responsible for one another. Like last week, those who are condemned are those who fail to act, to do anything. That one talent servant last week, all he had to do was to put the money in the bank. He didn't have to take any risks. I mean, how hard is it to put some money in the bank? And he failed to do even that. Perhaps this is not the right text for teaching this, but an ethic of loving our neighbors is consistently taught and lived out by Jesus, and we dare not excuse ourselves from a life of service. If this is intended for non-believers, if non-believers are expected and judged by their actions toward those who are in need, how much more should we be committed? 
If God expects non-believers to show kindness to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned, shouldn't we, shouldn't we, who claim to know the love of God, who claim that God is love, who claim to be filled with the Spirit of God, shouldn't we be doing much more than the non-believers? Again, not because we are trying to earn salvation or anything like that, not because we're in fear of punishment or trying to avoid hell, but because we have come to experience and to know the love of God, and because we abide in Christ, through whom we can and do all things. Brothers and sisters, let the love of God fill you and motivate you and make real the faith that we profess. Please pray with me. Lord, we know that you are the Lord. And that fear of punishment is poor motivation. Help us to find our confidence in your love for us. And in that assurance, help us to live in such a way that others may see and give you glory. Help us, God, to be like the good trees bearing good fruit. To be the people that you have made us. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.